Hello, everyone. Welcome to It Was a Different Time, the podcast where we explore the social and cultural changes that 60-plus-year-olds have experienced in their lifetimes. I'm your host, Natalie Weckeser. Today, we will be talking to Wiltz, a man who spent most of his life traveling and adapting to new and different places. My name is Wiltz Gutierrez, and I am 73 years old, and I was born 111144. Yeah, uh, as far as I know, I was born in New Orleans. Um, until I was eight years old, I lived in the Lower Ninth Ward. And my father was a carpenter, and he built a house down in St. Bernard Parish, and we moved there. I went to school, several schools, and when I got up into the high school level, it wasn't my cup of tea the social environment, so I gave a, another address, my sister's address in town, and I went to a high school in town, which I had to hitchhike to school every day and hitchhike home every day. When I was freshman in high school, uh, a family, well-educated family who had two boys, uh, one of them was about the same age as me. They kind of adopted me and invited me to go on vacation with them, and that was the first time I got out of Louisiana. Maybe that influenced me, but I, I liked it. I graduated from high school in 1964. I went to a college, a little suitcase college across the lake, like Lake Pontchartrain, and uh, I worked... Uh, I worked that summer after high school to get enough money to go to that college, and of course at that time it was very cheap. I paid $450 per semester, room and board and tuition. So that was extraordinarily cheap compared to today's standards. But of course I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do in life. So that didn't last very long. Two and a half years or two years, I should say, of college, and I became restless and didn't know what the hell I was d wanting. And my parents at the time actually said to me, why do you want to go to college? And I said, well, a lot of my friends are going. There was no incentive. No one said, y you really should go to college. After college, uh, my girlfriend at the time left and went to California. And my job kind of ended. And so I ended up going out to California in an old Volkswagen by myself. I ended up uh, meeting my first wife in California. After meeting in California, Wilton and his first wife traveled to many different places. But the first was home to New Orleans where he planned to reconnect with his parents. Now I'm with my first wife, and I'm traveling from Hollywood, California, to New Orleans. I arrive in New Orleans, and immediately I want to see my parents. And so I go there, and I tell them, you know, I got a girlfriend and stuff like that. And I wanted her to stay with me by my mom's. And my mom, well, you guys are not married. You didn't do that back then. 
and I was pretty devastated about it. But at the time, I sort of, I didn't realize the implications of it. And so my girlfriend at the time stayed in a campground while I went and spent the night with my mom and dad. And then after a while, we decided we wanted to take off and have an adventure. And so we decided we wanted to go to the Virgin Islands. The trip to the Virgin Islands from New Orleans. We arrived under the premise because of a magazine article that you could get a sailboat for about $1,000. And with that sailboat, you could just sail it from island to island, taking cargo and this and that and the other. And um, it was, it, you know, something that would be very easy to do down there. And that's the main reason why we went down there. We arrived. We went to the place where it's mentioned in the magazine. And there was a prepared statement that the guy had saying that it was a fraudulent sort of article about the possibilities of buying uh, a boat for $1,000 and blah, blah, blah. So that blew our dream right out the window. We were staying in a real flea bag motel, hotel, and um, we actually got in an argument. And I got mad, and, and, and I said, I got to cool off, and I took a walk. And I walked and walked and walked. And I ended up walking along the industrial waterfront. And there was a shack on that waterfront. And the shack said, uh, White's Construction Company. And I thought, well... I know a little bit about that. Let me, let, me, let me see what that's about. So I walked in, and there was a real prissy sort of secretary who kind of looked me up and down like, who's this trash walking in? And I said, I'm looking for work. And she said, well, you have to fill out an application. So I filled out an application, and a little while later, they called me in. And the boss looked at me, and he said, you want to work? I said, yeah, I, I, I need to work. I, I, I got to have a job. I need to work, you know. And he says, okay, show up tomorrow at 6 o'clock. So now I get there at 6 o'clock in the morning. They put me in a truck with a couple of huge, huge Islander guys. We go to the airport, to the tarmac with jackhammers. And these guys are huge, and I'm a pretty small person. And, but I took my turn on it. We all took turns on the machine while the other ones held the hose and did things. But we were basically jackhammering the airstrip. And then the owner of the com company calls me in, and he says, I'm sorry. He says, I read your resume. I read your application. He says, you ain't going to that tarmac anymore. He says, I want you to run this part of the company. And so from that moment on, that nasty secretary that gave me the application, I became her boss. It was a great, a great job.
and I had a good relationship, and uh, I got very, very friendly with the local people, and ended up getting a, a nice little house, renting a nice little house on a private beach. And I would snorkel every day after work, and I would holler up at my wife and say, what do you want for dinner? Lobster, you know, crayfish, they call them there, or fish. Because it was so plentiful and so easy, I could, I could just have dinner any time I wanted just by snorkeling in my front yard. That was the best. That was the most fun. And uh, my daughter was born. We, um, we had a baby and we weren't married. And uh, we decided to stay together and we got married. It was a very nice experience there. But at the time I was still a vegetarian and food was not really fresh there and so on. And after a year, we got a little bit antsy to do something else. And that's when we ended up in Montana. So we shipped a Volkswagen bus to Miami and picked it up later and traveled all the way across the country and ended up in Montana with $25, a three-month-old baby who was being breastfed, so she was very well cared for, uh, an old Volkswagen combi van, and we were dreaming after we had started to work and we was dreaming about finding a place to rent a house that we could live in instead of in the combi van in the campground. So we're walking down the street. It was a cute little street. It was a cute little white house with a white picket fence. And we stopped in front of it. And we were just, you know, like dreaming about it. And this guy walks up to us. And he says, hi, what, what are you guys doing? You, you looking for a place to stay or something like that? And we said, well, you know, we are thinking about it, but we're not ready yet, just yet. You know, we're, we're not established enough yet to, to, to rent a house. So he says, yeah, he says, yeah, I see you looking at this house. He says, you like that house? And we said, yeah, it's a cute little house. And he says, why don't you move in? I said, I can't pay you. I, I, I don't have any money. He says, I don't care. He says, move in. When you get the money, pay me. And we did. We moved in, and sure enough, that same week I got a job, and I made money, and I paid him. I never went a month without paying the rent. And uh, we had a great time. Within a year, we had a house. Yeah, we were pretty much established. Traveling, I found at, at that point, as a young couple, you were treated much more favorably. Here's a young married couple, they have a baby. It's sort of like there was empathy or sympathy wherever you went, whatever you did. After a visit from Wiltz's wife's sister, she became homesick, so the couple decided to pack up and move to Switzerland. Uh, but then my wife, who was from Europe, uh, while we were there, her sister came 
and that made my wife homesick. So I said, well, what do you want to do? And she said, well, I want to go back home. I said, okay. So we took off in the dead of winter from Montana, right before Christmas, with a trailer pulling Christmas trees and some wreaths that we had made. And we stayed in motels along the way, and we bartered with the Christmas trees and the wreaths for our night stay. And we traveled in a 1954 Plymouth with a bad differential, barely made it to New Orleans. And then a few months later, we sold everything we had and we got on a, a freighter from New Orleans to Hamburg, Germany and then by train to Switzerland, where we stayed for 10 years. Arriving there approximately in 1970 during the first oil crisis, and in the train station in Basel, my sister-in-law in, in, in Switzerland picked us up at the station in Bern, and I only had $750 when I arrived in Europe. So, but it was enough uh, to buy an old used car to get a, an old farmhouse, um, rent, rent an old farmhouse, and, uh, and immediately got a job because in Switzerland they had full employment. And basically any job you went for, they gave it to you <laughs> because they needed people. So I got a job um, as a mechanic in a in an Alfa Romero dealership. So I went to work as a mechanic and I didn't know the language. But very, very quickly, I learned first all the curse words. Uh, I slowly picked up the language then tried to go to school at night to learn more, but the schooling was done by a Swedish person with a funny accent, speaking, trying to speak high German. And all day long, I was speaking a dialect, uh, trying to s understand a dialect all day long. Even the radio, they spoke in dialect. And then uh, we were s still vegetarians at the time. And so there was a company that we bought some vegetables from, which grew organic vegetables and so on. Uh, while I was shopping in their little warehouse for food, I said to somebody, this is a great company that I wouldn't mind working for a company like that. And I was just off the top of my head. I was just saying something. The next day, the owner of the company showed up at my door and he said, were you serious? Would you really like to work for us? And I said, yeah, why not? And he said, well, he says, what do you think about driving a truck for us? And I said, Sure, I could do that. Oh, but you have to get a Swiss driver's license to drive a big rig. It is so complicated driving a big truck in Switzerland, all the laws, rules, and you have to know the whole mechanics of the truck, the braking system, and all that stuff. Well, I managed to pass the test, got my license, and started driving all over Europe, France, 
Spain. I was delivering stuff all over the place. Uh, I, you know, the stress uh, driving on the autobahns with a big double axle trailer pulling, it was not fun. And so that lasted a year. And then my wife and I talked about maybe finding some place where we could maybe find an old house and start a, a youth hostel or a, you know, bed and breakfast or something. And uh, my wife said, being from Europe, she said, well, there's the International Youth Hostels Association and maybe we could get a job with them. We don't even have to go, you know, get a uh, place of our own. So we called up and they said, yes, you want to work? <laughs> we said, yes. They said, we got seven different places to choose from. And we chose a place up in the mountains and did that for eight years. As I look back, it was like the best job I ever had. And of course, it was also the most lucrative. It was just uh, ideal. Made very good money and uh, had lots of benefits. Three months paid vacation was one of them. I, I really got into it. I learned the Swiss language. They had it, they had it together. The whole system, how the trains ran, how the villages were. And there's a lot of really true conservative by keeping the old ways that work and not, you know, giving into modern development. I did everything and anything I wanted to do in Switzerland. And uh, there was no restrictions, both politically or financially or any which way. They, it, it just, it was easy. Now, I know the world has changed, and Switzerland has changed a bit too. I went back several times after living there, and um, each time I felt how expensive it was, but <laughs> when I was there earning Swiss wages, nothing was expensive. Everything was normal. After Switzerland, the relationship was going a little sour, and we decided we needed to go someplace neutral again, so we chose New Zealand. Moving on to New Zealand, it's like starting all over again. It was like uh, economically and politically, New Zealand in 1980, was like 50, 1950s in the United States. Um, so technology was pretty absent. And uh, I mean, even the type of cars they had, there's only three million people. And um, I think they had something like four or five million sheep. So there was a lot more sheep than people. New Zealand was, was very, laid back and uh, when I was in New Zealand, bought a motorcycle, traveled to North Island, then decided to go to the South Island because everybody told me it was prettier and nicer and more laid back and so on. And then we learned along the way by traveling, by going to youth hostels, by listening to travelers that had gone, had been where we were going, and then they asked us where we had been and so the communications of what's ahead, what's behind, 
works for you. And when you get on the International Traveler's Trail, which is those backpackers who are out for adventure, it is nonstop. You find all the right places and you get all the right information because these people are not there for a day or night staying in a hotel. They are winging it along and living off the land and having a, a much more in-depth experience. So anyway, we heard that there was this organic farm that would take you in, and if you worked four hours a day, you could have room and board for those four hours a day. You could eat, and you had a place to stay. So we did. And when we met the owner of the place, he asked us one question. Do we know much about photography? And I said, well, I said, you know, I, 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 I'm not that great, I said, but, you know, I had my own lab, I built my own enlargers, I developed my own film, I, you know, I, I like photography. He says, well, he says, would you help me? He said, if you can help me, he said, you can stay in my house. You don't have to work. All you have to do is organize my slides because I work for National Geographic and I go on assignment all over the world. So, for instance, National Geographic would say to him, hey, we need some pictures of uh, volcanoes, flowing lava, whatever or not. Go get them. And he, that's what he did. No matter what they wanted, he was the go-to guy. And he traveled all over the world. And while he was gone, we were sorting his photos and living like kings and queens in his house. <laughs> After New Zealand and the relationship didn't work, then we, we separated, divided up the assets, divorced, and my daughter at the time was pretty independent. My daughter said, Dad, go wherever you want. I'm, I'm okay. She was out of tech school, had a job, had a boyfriend, and was completely independent. So she said, Dad, take off. And so, and we didn't have a whole lot of money. So what I did was um, I sold all my windsurfing equipment and I put the money in the bank and put automatic payments on the mortgage and I found out about through a friend that you could do a workaway passage on a freighter and I thought maybe I'll go home, go see my family and I didn't have the money for airfare or nothing so I did a workaway passage which meant I didn't have to pay anything, but I had to work on the ship for my, my passage. And Hawaii stopped, and I said, I think I'll get off here. So I got off in Hawaii. That was the first time I went to Hawaii. And I, I was, had that windsurfing school and everything in uh, New Zealand. And, but actually, in Switzerland, I had met at an international windsurfing contest the world champion windsurfer Robbie Nash and his family were all there at this at this regatta and um, now 
don't know, was it a couple of years later or whatever it was, I'm I'm in Hawaii and luck has it, I heard that the in the world champion windsurfer uh, needed a manager of the windsurfing shop. So I went for it and I got it. And so for six months, I managed the windsurfing shop in Hawaii and I got to meet all of the top guys and, and uh, do a lot of windsurfing. And uh, that, was, that was enough for me, I was bitten. And then uh, I returned to New Zealand. Oh, probably it was like a year or so later that I was able to, to get to leave New Zealand and come back to the States. And of course, after a few months, my desire was to get back to Hawaii. In the process, I met my second wife. Lo and behold, she um, wanted to come with me. That's how I ended up back in Hawaii. We got married in Hawaii and stayed there for 25 years almost. 25 years, and I'm still going back to Hawaii. Wilkes now spends most of his time either at his home in Hawaii or traveling to New Orleans or Las Vegas to spend time with his friends and family. Europe, running a youth hostel in Switzerland. I ran across a lot of people traveling. Um, the difference between vacation and travelers is uh, completely at different ends of the spectrum. Uh, the vacation people, uh, we like to say, mm, they get a Eurorail Euro pass and they have a slideshow view of Europe taken from the train because they spend all their time running around trying to get as much done in a couple of weeks on a train because it's the most convenient way to travel in Europe uh, and they're just taking photographs out the train. Uh, so their experience is, to me, uh, limited. And they walk away with a limited understanding of where they've been and what they've experienced. On the contrary, you have travelers. And the travel person, it's extended. It's three months, a year, two years, whatever. And I had... Uh, many, many people that I ran into that were travelers. And uh, it's a totally different person. If you have time, uh, no commitments, um, and no agenda, you can go for a long ways on a little. But the moment you put a time restraint on it and you say, I only have two weeks. I only have two months. As soon as you put a restriction on that, then it costs money. When you don't have any agenda and you got time, then things get cheaper. I'm here right now just to prove it. This has been It Was a Different Time. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at It Was a Different Time for updates on upcoming episodes and fun facts about our guests. Also, check us out on itwasadifferenttime.wordpress.com.
www.thecrossingpoint.com for episodes and portraits of all of our guests. I'm your host, Natalie Wekeser, and thanks for listening.